And hello and welcome to The Conversation. I am Mark Thompson. It's always a pleasure and an honor to be here. Jake, of course, is involved in any number of activities. And so when he can't be here and I get the bat beam, I show up excitedly. And today is a really terrific show. Two very different guests, uh, one of whom is involved in a, I want to say, aggressive questioning uh, and the calling into question the aggressive questioning and a aggressive confessions that are solicited from children. And at the center of the way that all of that is done is a controversial murder case. So those of you who are in this world of true crime and murder, there is overlap in today's show with all of that. But more to the point, the way in which law enforcement solicits these confessions, and I use it in quotes, is very much at the heart of things, and we'll get to that in the second half of the show. First half of the show involves something that's also so very essentially topical, and that's uh, nuclear weaponry and the nuclear arms race. And so I welcome to the conversation Lily Adams. Uh, Lily works with the outreach, uh, she is an outreach consultant, she works in the area of outreach for the Union of Concerned Scientists. And uh, Lily, you've been so active in this area for so long, and looking at the nuclear weapons proliferation worldwide. It has newly been our focus in the area of Iran. We can start there, but then I'd like to talk about sort of the nuclearization of the entire globe. I mean, Iran is really just yeah. one sliver. There, there are nukes in Pakistan, there are nukes in North Korea, there are nukes across the globe that really get orphaned in the focus on Iran. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we're in a really dangerous time uh, for nuclear weapons policy worldwide right now. Um, and there are a lot of flashpoints. And like you said, Iran is just the most recent. Um, so I'm happy to start there. Um, uh, but yeah, this is a really important time to be talking about this issue. Well, uh, because we are starting with Iran, and then I want, but I, then I really want to focus on how the nuclear arms race has been restarted with Russia and the U.S. But but just because yeah. we're talking about Iran, so. This president, for all the reasons that are pretty obvious now, uh, nothing to do with the substantive aspects of the treaty, but more with ego and I suspect, you know, in response to the fact that Obama made the deal, he pulls out of right. the uh, the nuclear agreement that we were just one of the signatories to with Iran. Uh, mm -hmm. Give us some thoughts on that, and then generalize this picture to uh, the globe itself. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so like you said, in 2018, the Trump administration pulled the United States out of the Iran nuclear deal or the JCPOA. Uh, this was a deal that was by all accounts working. Uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency had confirmed a number of times that Iran was complying with the deal um, and it was limiting Iran's ability to uh, produce the materials needed to make a nuclear bomb. Uh, ever since we pulled out of that deal in 2018, we have seen rising tensions between the U.S. and Iran. Uh, we've seen crippling sanctions uh, from the U.S. on Iran. We've seen Iran uh, steadily stop complying with different terms of the Iran deal. Um, and that has really all culminated in the events of the last couple of days and weeks uh, now with the U.S. killing a top military leader in Iran, General Soleimani, uh, and a couple days after that, Iran stating that they are no longer limiting their uranium enrichment, uh, which could potentially uh, reduce the time that uh, it would take them to build a nuclear bomb. Uh, 
so this is an extremely dangerous moment. Uh, but I think that what we have to remember is that the door for diplomacy is absolutely still open. And we really need to walk through that door. Uh, so Iran has said that they are still willing to uh, comply with inspections from the International Atomic Energy Agency and open to walking back their recent statements about uranium enrichment uh, if the U.S. is willing to go back to the negotiating table. Uh, so this is a really important moment to de-escalate and go back to diplomacy. Uh, so that's kind of where things stand right now. Yeah, and, and the rhetoric has certainly been hot. But as you say, if it could be backed off and there could actually be some kind of a diplomatic rapprochement, well, that would change things significantly. Now let's look at the U.S. and China and Russia and sure. this Trump administration in relation to that and agreements that have been in existence in the past as far as maintaining a lid on a nuclear development, on the, on the development of new nuclear weapons. And even as we've seen in the case of the Trump administration, a demand, and by the way, to be fair, it's not just Trump. I think Obama had money set aside as well for the yes, refurbishment okay. of the nuclear weapon program. Yeah, so you hit on a couple of really important points there, and I'd really like to talk about both. Uh, so first, the different nuclear agreements and arms control treaties. So the Iran nuclear deal is not the only uh, nuclear weapons agreement that the Trump administration has walked away from. Uh, so earlier in 2019, uh, the U.S. withdrew from a treaty called the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, or INF Treaty, uh, this was one that was signed actually back in the 80s by President Reagan and actually got rid of an entire class of nuclear missiles uh, and really was one of the key factors in slowing down the nuclear arms race and decreasing tensions between the U.S. and Russia. Um, so it's very concerning that we pulled out of that treaty. Uh, now we're actually on the brink of potentially losing another foundational treaty, which would really be the last treaty limiting the arsenal, the nuclear arsenals of the U.S. and Russia, um, and that's new start. Uh, so this limits the nuclear warheads between the U.S. and Russia to 1,550 warheads. Um, it needs to be extended, uh, and the Trump administration has really been dragging their feet and even indicating that they will not extend this, kind of almost looking for opportunities to uh, get out of it. Um, and that would put us in an extremely dangerous position where for the first time in decades, we would not have limits on uh, the nuclear weapons arsenals of the U.S. and Russia, potentially putting us back into a Cold War kind of situation. Yeah, you know, all of this started, Lily, didn't it, during this Cold War run-up when there was just right. this weapons race unabated, you know? Right. And then finally, when the cooler heads prevailed, it seemed as though there was a de-escalation. What's happened to that? Have we, the U.S., been responsible for a lot of the changes that have been associated with now a re-escalation? Absolutely. And I think, you know, after the end of the Cold War, we kind of went to sleep on this issue a little bit. We felt like, okay, we're fine now. Uh, we can kind of, uh, we can uh, move on from nuclear weapons issues. But the fact is that we still have about 14,000 nuclear weapons out there in the world. Uh, the U.S. has over 6,000 nuclear weapons. Um, and so this issue has not gone away. Um, and uh, the U.S.'s actions have certainly exacerbated this problem. And like you said, this started under the Obama administration. It's just getting worse under the Trump administration. Um, so right now, we're set to spend $1.2 trillion over the next 30 years uh, maintaining and rebuilding and in some cases actually 
upgrading our nuclear weapons arsenal. Um, so that number, 1.2 trillion, is just like way too big to comprehend. Uh, but it boils down to roughly $4 million that we're spending on nuclear weapons every single hour. Uh, wow. And that money could be used for so many other things. They sh it should not be being used on the most dangerous weapons that have ever existed that we can only hope we would never use. Well, it's fiscally irresponsible, clearly. Uh, and, Absolutely. And yet uh, it continues to be this priority. As you say, it was born in the, uh, the run-up of the Cold War. Uh, you know, for those of us who don't know, and you, you, know, you work with the, with the concerned scientists and, and that mm -hmm. uh, Union of Concerned Scientists does so much outreach, and we'll get to that maybe in a second. But uh, just for those of us who don't work in that world, tell us what that means, like 4,000 warheads or 14,000 warheads. I mean, right. all these warheads, does that mean everybody's blowing themselves up multiple times? I mean, I always heard that, like everybody could blow themselves yeah. up, you know, a bunch of times over it's redundancy on redundancy it, you're absolutely redundancy on redundancy is absolutely right uh, so this was 14,000 weapons is enough to end the world and all of the human population many times over as is 6,000 nuclear weapons it's complete overkill um, and th another thing that's important to remember is that the weapons that the US currently has in our nuclear weapons arsenal are in many cases tens of times more powerful than the bombs that were used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which is the only time nuclear weapons have been used in conflict. Um, and that is the most devastating weapon we have ever seen. Um, it is almost impossible to imagine the kind of devastation that the weapons we have in our arsenal now would cause. So when you work with the Union of Concerned Scientists, what are the uh, areas of emphasis and, and what are the ways in which uh, you all might be able to make a difference. I mean, I've gone to the website and I've seen some of the sort mm -hmm. of the petition related materials that, that you talk about there. But what is what can you do? What is being done as a group? I mean, you guys have so much credibility and yet this just seems to be an unabated run to arming ourselves. Yeah, so there are a couple of policies that we are working on right now uh, that would really reduce the risk of nuclear weapons and the risk of ever um, ending up in a nuclear war. Uh, so the one that we're very focused on right now is establishing what's called a no first use policy. So actually under current US policy, the US still maintains the right to use nuclear weapons first in a conflict, um, especially against other nuclear weapon states. So essentially we're saying we maintain the right to start a nuclear war. Uh, we should never start a nuclear war. Uh, and so we are working to make it U.S. policy um, to never be able to use nuclear weapons first. And there are bills in the House and the Senate uh, that we are uh, supporting and urging all of our members and activists to support and contact their members of Congress to co-sponsor. Um, another really crazy policy that the U.S. has is that the president has sole authority to launch our nuclear weapons without consulting anyone in the military or the government. Uh, so they hopefully would consult with other people, but if the president wanted to, they could launch nuclear weapons on their own at any time. Uh, so and again, that was, not to interrupt, but that was also born of that Cold War period yes. when you felt, hey, the Russians are launching, you don't have time to talk, you're the president, you gotta launch also type thing. 
Exactly. Uh, these are really hallmarks of the Cold War era, and we're no longer in the Cold War. You know, we need nuclear policies that match uh, the global context that we're in right now. Uh, and these policies are absolutely not that. So we are working to, uh, we're calling on Congress to change these policies uh, to make the world a safer place from the risks of nuclear weapons. I just think the work you're doing is so very important. And and I have one last question. We don't have really much time, but I have to get it in. And that is about this money that's set aside to upgrade or refurbish or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I always hear that. I mean, really, you got to refurbish the weapons? I mean, aren't they there? They're, they're weapons. You fire them and that's it. I mean, do they need to be kept current in some way? Do the technologies need to be upgraded? Or, or is this just a gift to uh, defense contractors? Um, so some of the weapons in our arsenal are older. Um, certainly the level of spending that we're seeing is completely unnecessary to keep our weapons safe. Yeah. Um, we absolutely believe that as long as we have nuclear weapons, they should be safe and secure, um, and we should spend money on that. Um, however, this kind of money that we're seeing go to these weapons is completely unnecessary for weapons that we don't need, especially when we're talking about making weapons uh, or upgrading our weapons to make them more deadly um, or things like, actually, in this administration, we are creating new nuclear weapons that are, in some cases, seen as more usable. So that's the exact opposite direction uh, that we should be going. Well, that concerns me also, and maybe in your next visit we can address that because I think this president, in particular, has talked about the fact that you know, hey, we have this nuclear arsenal. How come we never use it? You know, that right. came out early in his uh, his administration. I thought, wow, this is really scary. Uh, these are scary times, Lily Adams. Thank you for spending a few minutes taking us through some of it. I, I wish you good luck, and we certainly hope for you know a de-escalation at some point and for cooler heads to prevail. And uh, again, all the information on Lily is on the screen and the uh, Union of Concerned Scientists. Uh, we wish you good luck. Thanks again, Lily Adams. Thanks so much for having me. We'll return in a moment with the story of a murder confession and a manner in which these confessions are solicited that is heinous. That's the only word that comes to mind. The conversation continues. Welcome back to the conversation. I'm Mark Thompson here for Jank. So nice that you could be with us. I promised you a really interesting show with a super interesting guest, very different from the first guest we had. And Donald McGinnis is that person. His book is She's So Cold. And the book details a murder, and it's an awful, awful murder of a 12-year-old girl. And the local cops came in and pursued an investigation. And after getting a confession, they pinned it on the brother the 14-year-old brother, and I believe one other uh, child, as I as I recall. Isn't that right, Donald? Uh, welcome yes, to the conversation. There's, <laughs> there's three boys. One is the uh, brother of uh, uh, Stephanie, who was killed. Then his best friend, uh, Joshua Treadway, and also a third guy named Aaron Hauser. And as I was saying before the break, the key, I mentioned confession, is the way they got this confession. I don't mean to focus on this to the exclusion of all other facts, but I use the word heinous because it really is perverse the way that law enforcement pursued this one end, this one confession, and the way in which they got it. I wonder if you could detail some of that for us. Absolutely, uh, Michael Crow was the first person to be interviewed, and they did that on a hunch because some 
officer thought that Michael wasn't grieving enough. Uh, and what they did is they told him that um, there was a good evil, there was a good uh, Michael and an evil Michael. And it was the evil Michael that killed, and it's not unusual for him not to remember that he did it. And all this interrogation took place without the knowledge of the parents. The parents didn't even know he was being detained, isn't that right? That's correct. And just to follow that strand a little bit further, uh, this kind of confession that's solicited over this period of time involves uh, other things. It involves that excuse that kind of hang that, that peg out for you to hang your confession on, which is, you know, you probably don't remember this because that's the way the mind works. It's sort of, uh, but, but also all those traditional uh, interrogation techniques, which is, you know, it goes on and on and on. You don't get a chance to sleep. In other words, the, these kids are worn down, are they not? Absolutely. Michael was interrogated twice for long periods of time. They use what's called a re-technique of interrogation. And that technique requires that the child be isolated. It requires that the child in no way at all have access to the parents or to an attorney. And it, and it is a terrible form. In Michael's case, they had a psychologist that was part of the interrogation. They also had a deputy DA there and three other police officers that rotated in and out constantly questioning him. So what happens ultimately, uh, Donald McGinnis, is, uh, is what? A conviction and real time served, right? Uh, the boys were uh, uh, kept in detention until there was a 707 hearing. The 707 hearing is a California requirement where a judge has to certify that they're non-treatable in the juvenile court level. We won that. Uh, uh, the boys were then released, but uh, what happened after that is that the deputy DA ran down uh, to the adult court, filed charges. The boys were rearrested immediately, and uh, $500,000 bails were placed on them. The community then gathered together, having seen what they had gone through through the court hearing at the juvenile court, and. Uh, uh, individuals put up their homes as security so the boys could come home while the trials were pending in adult court. So in your book, you detail all of this. You detail this kind of uh, this confession technique that was uh, that was implemented and you detail the way this community has come together to sort of rally for these kids. Uh, what else can you tell us? I mean, I, I hate to, you know, Spoil it, although there's a, the fact is, I mean, it was in the public record what happened, but take us through the next few beats, if you would. Well, the interesting part of this is the DA wouldn't give up. They continued uh, to pursue the case. And it wasn't until at my insistence and the cooperation of Mary Ellen Attridge, who represented uh, Joshua Treadway, uh, that uh, the clothing of a migrant, not a migrant, and uh, psychologically uh, uh, deranged person who had been detained and his clothing was gathered, the boys uh, 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 and the boys' property was sent up to a laboratory in Berkeley, California, one of the most advanced DNA testing facilities in the country at the time. And uh, lo and behold, on the clothing of the uh, uh, my uh, the uh, 
crazy person was found Stephanie's blood. And after that, uh, the he was uh, prosecuted. His name is Richard Tewitt. There were two trials, one in 2004, where he was convicted of voluntary manslaughter. The second one, after the courts overturned that and sent it back, was in 2011, at which time the boy was, uh, the young man was convicted of the crime. Since then, all three of the 14-year-old boys have been totally exonerated by the courts and found innocent. So it has been quite a circular path that everything has followed. The problem is all of these three 14-year-old boys had to suffer for a good 10 to 12 years as this entire project drug out. Yeah, that's the point. I mean, this isn't something that happened over 10 or 12 months. It went on for years. And uh, at, at, I think along the way here, there are certain points at which we can focus on different things. One of which is the fact that there was a psychologist there who actually is supervising things while they're interrogating these kids. And it's not just even these kids, now to generalize to the problem, interrogating young people with in these very, very serious criminal situations. And yet the psychologist lets this entire process proceed. Absolutely, in fact, that's part of the re-technique of uh, interrogation. It is the psychological manipulation of the person being interviewed or questioned. And in this case, they had a psychologist there assisting the adults against the boys, trying to get the boys to admit what had occurred. I'm wondering what can be done and what uh, what you're doing. I mean, you're obviously drawing great attention to it in this case that is, uh, is a fascinating case and also sort of a sad case. Uh, is is that what we can hope for, that that stories like the one that you're telling will will lead to change? Are there any advocates out there that are beyond yourself making a difference? Are you part of some coalition that, that actually could make a difference in this regard? Well, I'm sorry I'm not part of a coalition, but the California legislature is instituting different reforms in the juvenile law. And I also, in the book, She's So Cold, propose a new special Miranda rights for children that it requires the involvement of parents and attorneys. And I also have a Bill of Rights for Children, and I hope that the legislature of California and other states will take a hard look at these proposals that I make, because in the Bill of Rights for Children are solutions that prevent the abuse of these uh, type of situations against young people. The problem is the law doesn't recognize that children are still children. They treat them as adults when they are not equipped with adult mentality and experiences to defend their constitutional rights. Donald, don't you point to uh, sort of new non-coercive ways to uh, pursue these uh, confession interviews and just interviews generally, that, that there are reforms, if you will, that are now taking effect not only with kids, but across the legal system, the judicial system. Oh, yes. In the peace method, which is the, the way that the English, the British, interrogate people, they are not allowed to lie about the state of the evidence or who's supposedly confessing that the accused that is being interviewed committed a crime. They instead discuss the matter and they attempt uh, to reason the different responses and the evidence that they do have. 
but they they're not allowed to to uh, lie in the United States. The police can lie all all they can, as they did to Michael Crow, as they did to Joshua Treadway and Aaron Hauser. The Canadians have accepted the peace method of interrogation from uh, Great Britain, and they do not follow the American system. There are variations and sometimes different departments, even within the Royal Canadian Police, uh, the Mounties, that will break down and use the Reed technique of interrogation. But there is reform taking place. And uh, after uh, 9-11 and Abu, uh, the uh, Guantanamo Bay interrogation of people that were subjected to actual torture, reforms have been instituted to eliminate many of the factors that the Reed technique of interrogation uh, proposes and instructs the different police departments throughout the United States to use. And the problem, of course, Donald, is that these are not accurate confessions you're getting when you're torturing someone. I mean, you know, th this country has a, an ugly history and just, uh, you know, Western culture generally has an ugly history torturing these confessions out of people. And of course, you don't get an accurate information. Uh, the sort of reforms you're talking about tend to be those that are also more effective in terms of getting accurate confessions and accurate information. Research shows that if you follow a system that does not use psychological torture, that you will have less false confessions than what we have here in the United States with the Reed technique of interrogation. On top of everything else, uh, back when the pilgrims first landed at Plymouth Rock, they de decided not to allow torture. Instead, they reasoned with the people that they were accused of crimes and were being prosecuted. For some reason, between then until the 20th century, we went off track. And the Supreme Court, for a period of a good 40 years, wrestled with the problem until they came out with uh, uh, a Miranda versus Arizona and the Miranda rights. Uh, Donald McGinnis, the book is She's So Cold. And from this one murder of this 12-year-old and then the accusations of uh, the young people young teenagers that were involved, uh, but as it turns out, weren't involved in the murder, you point to so many different flaws, and the interrogation of these kids is uh, one of the main ones. And these reforms that you're suggesting and point to uh, are refreshing, and I hope that they continue. Thank you so much for joining us, Donald. Good luck with the book. Thank you for being here on the conversation. Thank you for your time, it's a yeah. pleasure. There's just so much at play there. And I love that he mentioned Guantanamo because as we know, it's just, uh, it's a dead end, you know. Um, anyway, great show, a lot of fun. I think there's a lot to think about. And again, Donald's book is She's So Cold. Lily Adams, uh, great conversation about nuclear proliferation worldwide. Thank you, Jank, for letting me fill in. Thank you, everybody. I have a podcast, which is called The Edge with Mark Thompson. There'll be a new episode up there soon. I hope you'll check that out. And until next time, bye-bye.